history's greatest military strategists, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, Sun Tzu, won battles and wars using creativity rather than strength. They shared an unnatural ability to see and choose strategic options that others had ignored. Today's book offers a toolkit fashioned by an ancient Chinese text called the 36 Stratagems that is surprisingly effective at triggering creative thought. The text's 36 metaphors are more than colorful phrases. Since 2003, today's guest has seen the stratagems reveal unexpected plans for achieving goals in a wide range of contexts from negotiations to mergers and acquisitions. It is a great pleasure to welcome our guest today in what's the start of a four-part series covering a body of his work. He is a professor at NYU and FYU. He is the founder of the Outthinker Network, and he is author of several titles that we will cover during this series. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show, Kayan Krippendorf. Thank you. So great to be here. It's great to have you on the show, man. I, I thought we'd start by explaining the context of the book, because it is so clear from reading your work that you have this Eastern influence that's just pervading your thinking and indeed your writing as well. So maybe we'll share the origin story of this coming from the 36 stratagem. The easy but false answer is that I'm half Asian. My mother's from Bangladesh. That's South Asia. And, and most of the, the, the stratagems and the philosophy of the work that my work is built on is East Asian. And really it was 1980s, you know, Japanese culture was really a strong force in the United States. It is again. Um, my father is a professor. He was a professor at University of Pennsylvania for 58 years, longest serving professor in the history of the university. He goes to Japan. He comes back with some books on Zen. And so I just got really into Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, Zen and the art of archery. Like I'm 10 years old, 11 years old. That leads me to Sun Tzu and the Book of Five Rings and uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, this whole body of work called The Art of the Advantage. And I just sort of like just fell up. I also practiced martial arts as a child and and I meditated and all of that. And so I just really, I before I even discovered business, before I went to business school, like that was my basis. So um, when I found a copy of this ancient text, a translation of the first half of this ancient text called the 36 Stratagems, this was in 1999, 2000, um, it just captivated my interest and that began, uh, began like a seven, 10 year journey of just collecting cases and classifying them to this catalog of 36 strategies. Crayon's been doing that since 1995, collecting those papers as well and matching them, etc. So this is a body of work that's been a long time marinating inside your mind. There's four overarching laws that create four parts for the book as well. We're not going to get through all the stratagems today. We're going to cover 10. I asked Kyan for his favorite 10. And what we'll do is we'll maybe put them into context of which law that they fall in. So the first law behind the first stratagem is yin-yang polarity. I love this one. You know, so you don't know what you are unless you know what you're not. You don't know anything other than looking at it's what it's not, right? You look at a painting and what gives the shape of the painting is the negative space around the painting, right? So what's really helpful is looking at our Western language in contrast to an Eastern language, which has fundamentally different roots. 
English, French, German, Spanish, you know, all Germanic, Latin roots. And so we kind of understand each other. But the language gives you a different kind of frame that may be inconsistent with with your frame. So the polarity idea is that um, we in the West like to have one and not the other. We like to have growth and not decline. We like to have health and not sickness. We want to have up and not down. But the dominant perspective in Eastern thought is that you have to have both. If you create wealth, you create poverty. If you create health, you create sickness. If you create long, you create short. And this can be frustrating for Western perspective because we feel like, how can you make progress? Um, but in the Eastern philosophy, it's a little bit like creating balance rather than progress. Uh, in the way that we would define it. Now, you make progress by helping the system reach higher levels of balance, but you can never create A without also. I love it because also the, one of the things that we have in Western culture is a very competitive culture. And the Eastern tradition is more, you know, you need your competitors. You need your competitors to have a marketplace as well. Maybe we'll, we'll share that because that's another whole shift in mentality. In continuous change, you can have a winner. Um, what's to do the Western perspective? Hey, we're going to win the World Cup, and we're the winners, right? Uh, but we don't think about well. There's another World Cup in a world of continuous change. You know, up follows down, and down follows up, and up follows down. There's this famous story of a farmer who you probably have heard this story before. The f- farmer. Um, has horses and everyone says great that you have so many horses then his horses run away and they say it's so sad that your horses ran away and then he said um well it you know it's it's not it might be good news and then they come back there's a storm and other horses die and his horses come back and they're it's so great that your horses are back i don't know it could be a bad thing and his son is riding a horse his son falls and breaks a leg and oh it's so sad that your son broke his leg it might be a good thing and then the war breaks out and they conscript all the young men but his son can't serve because his leg is broken and they say oh that's great news you still have your son because it might be bad news right so it's the idea of like we don't get so it's, it's ups and downs and ups and downs um i think it's a little bit like um uh simon senek's concept of the infinite game the game never ends i think that's a, a, a kind of a close analogy to continuous I'm not going to jump ahead because I've I've a tendency to do that. I'm going to try and stick to our 10 in the sequence that we agreed. So stratagem one falls under the polarity principle. This is the first one. This is, I wish I knew this, by the way, when I was a young man going to nightclubs to catch something, first let it go. Well, the thing about the stratagems is they're not rules, right? M- many business books are about rules. You should always do this or you should choose this. In these, it sometimes says go first and sometimes go second. Go up and go down. Go fast and go slow. Just having you consider it. So this is, we, you know, we, we first mover advantage is kind of a dominant frame. We've got um, the idea of, um, you know, of blitz scaling, creating the network effect. The first person, you know, gets the dominant share and that is hard for people to, to, to catch up. And this says maybe you shouldn't be first. To catch something first, let it go. It comes from this story, this Chinese story, very famous historical story about a emperor who wants to quell a kingdom that's rebelling, and he captures the king and the, lets the king go. He captures the king, lets him go, catches the king. After seven times of catching the king and letting the king go, 
the king finally relents and says, okay, you beat me. I will be, you know, your subservient ruler of this kingdom. And now what the emperor did was not force compliance, but one compliance. And so the power of letting someone go, but following close enough that you can learn from them and you can catch up that this would be equivalent to the Western business concept of um, fast follower. Microsoft does this all the time. If you look at the history of Microsoft, they won't admit it, but if you look at it, they rarely are first. And I don't think they usually try to be first. They let others develop servers, develop the, um, the, 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 um, the, what's it called? The, um, the web browser, the internet browser, they they let them figure things out. They follow close behind. Once the business model of technology is figured out, then they can um, step in and let other people make some of the mistakes that they've made. So that that's the idea here is don't try to copy or get ahead of your competitor. Try to be observant and follow them closely enough that when what they do proves to work, you're ready to jump in. On the screen, I'm going to share a set of cards that Ben uses with his clients, with his strategy, chief strategy officers, et cetera, to get them to think outside the box. And I, I thought we'd share, Ken, an example here. So in the book, you mentioned the story of Coke and Pepsi, for example, but you might have one that you prefer to tell in this scenario. So, so in the book, uh, I talk about um, Coke and Pepsi and how they follow each other. Uh, one introduces a new flavor, the other one learns from that and copies them, then that one then introduces a new packaging or a new distribution channel, and the other one copies. So the idea is that they're learning from each other. It's kind of a cat and mouse game. Neither of them really would benefit by getting so far ahead of the other because then they miss out on the opportunities to learn from their innovations and adopt them. Uh, you know, I talked to you again about Microsoft doing this, I think Apple also does this. They wait until others figure out the MP3 player. We'll probably talk about Apple a little later in this case, but others figure out the MP3 player, the digital music, the headphones, and then they say, okay, now is the time that's right for us to take and pull those things together. Tons of examples of um, of. I'm going to try and stick to the script, man, and we'll move on to strategy. So strategy number five here, is in the book, you call it befriend the distance at distant enemy to attack one nearby. And then in the card deck, it's partner with someone unexpected. There are two sets of languages. One is the a translation of the original Chinese language. That's kind of rooted in, um, you know, me metaphorical, often military language. To make it more accessible for modern day, I have a modern interpretation of it. It's not precisely, but if we stick with partner, someone expects. And this is increasing, my research shows this is increasingly an important stratagem. In fact, when I refresh the most important stratagems later this year, this is going to be one of them. Many of your guests on your podcast have talked about the growing prevalence of ecosystem-based competition, and this is one element of that. Um, so the idea is that there was a, there was a war between two um, states and one state was going to attack the neighboring state. An advisor said, before you attack the neighboring state, why don't you first make alliances with other states that are on the periphery? They don't feel threatened by you. And they would feel that they benefit by your success because they're betting on the winner. 
in this case, the the that state captures the nearby states, captures the next ring of states, and then they're so big that they can eventually capture the outer ring of states. But the core idea here is we're going to reach across the bounds of what we normally define as entities that play in our space and find an uncommon ally. The way to access this is to ask, who else benefits if I win? The story that I use to describe this in, in the book is Honda entering India. India released its restrictions allowing foreign companies to invest in and this is within the motorcycle sector. Now, all the other motorcycle companies in the West, they jump in and they partner with local motorcycle providers. Instead, what Honda does is they decide to partner with a bicycle company called Hero. This bicycle company knows nothing about making motors or engines or selling motorcycles, but they have something that Honda doesn't have and that others don't have to the extent this company has, which is a nationwide distribution center of bicycle shops that are selling bicycles that could be trained now to sell motorcycles. So if you're thinking within the category of motorcycles, you're going to be looking at potential motorcycle partners. But if you look beyond that, you'll see who else benefit, who else might benefit if we win. Then you start looking outside of the sector. In this case, they chose a bicycle company. Um, so this is increasingly important today because more of our value is being delivered to end users, not as a standalone product or service, but in complement of other products and services. So we're increasingly seeing people buying whole solutions. They're going to buy the IoT device that is a camera that monitors their house along with the music player that allows them to play the music on that device along with the security support you know, service that will call you if there's an intruder, that kind of thing. They, 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 they want to buy the whole solution. And so what that means is that these companies that are competing in different categories now can come together and offer a comprehensive solution. So partnering with someone expect is becoming more important. Yeah, I'm think ecosystem thinking as well, which is suggest that in the picture as well of that slide as well. But that's within in polarity still. We're still in polarity. Law one is stratagem six, and this is kill with a borrowed knife. And I'll open you up with the uh, quote here. This is one of my favorites. I have to say, you're and th these quotes each chapter, each stratagem opens up with a quote from the thirty six stratagems. And this one goes as follows. Your enemy situation is clear, but your ally's stand is uncertain. At this time, induce your ally to attack your enemy in order to preserve your strength. In dialectic terms, another man's loss is your gain. Yes. Yes. And uh, the meaning of this has shifted a little bit, at least in the way I present it, right? Because in the, in the 1980s and 90s, you know, when I was doing a lot of the work to develop this, the frame for business was competition. It was find a customer that your competitor is competing with and then beat your competitor to serve the customer, right? With this ecosystem mindset that's becoming more dominant, kind of the meaning of this changes. This is related to partner someone expected in that instead of directly pursuing your target, you find others that have influence over them or that could attack them. Uh, a kind of mean version of this that I write about in the book is 
um, Coca-Cola buys aspartame from a company called Monsanto. It's a branded sweetener. That's what makes Coca-Cola uh, light or Diet Coke like so special. Now, the patent for aspartame is about to expire. And what Coca-Cola wants to do is to buy a cheaper generic version of aspartame. But when they test how this would work with, with customers, customers like seeing the logo of that particular aspartame. And I think it's NutraSweet, I want to say. They, so they want to see NutraSweet. They don't want to see generic aspartame. They'll have a lower propensity to buy. So the goal is, how can we get Monsanto to sell it to us at a non-branded cost, but still get to keep the brand? And so what they do is they encourage a company called the Home Sweetener Company to go into business, promising them that they would, or at least implying that they would then buy aspartame from this company. This company now can get funding. They can go to investors and say, hey, we're going to build this big factory because we have this big client. Coca-Cola is going to buy from us. They can get a loan. They can get investors. They build, they build, they build the capacity. And then just before the patent to aspartame expires, Coca-Cola signs a long-term distribution agreement or supply agreement with Monsanto at close to what would be the market price. So what you could say is Coca-Cola used the home sweetener company as a borrowed knife to attack their supplier. Companies do this all the time, right? You go to a Walmart, you know, if you want to sell something to Walmart, Walmart's going to Talk about the other suppliers that could supply the same thing. You're going to have to come down in price. You know, it's sort of like creating bad bargaining power, you know. But you can use this in marketing approaches too. You can think about who's your core customer and who else has influence over them. You know, like parents. I'm a parent of three children. I'm very influenced by what my children want, what movie we watch. Certainly my children have where we go for vacation. Certainly my children have influence over that. And so what you can do is you can advertise indirectly to children and get your children to ask you, hey, let's go to Disney World, right? So um, there are lots of different applications. And within ecosystems as well, I think this is also opens up. This is another pathway to what we call ecosystem thinking is to ask who else has influence over that aid entity that I'm looking for. I'd love to be in one of your sessions. I, I can see how this creates more questions with a team. So you're you're asking these questions, you look through the lens of one of these cards or one of these stratagems, and all of a sudden you just start a different conversation. Yeah. And I'm sure that's one of the goals of your work. Yes, exactly. It's just to open up questions, you know, because we think in patterns or like we're always living in a narrative. This happened, that happened, now we're here. What happens next to that narrative is this. And these are 36 different narratives that if you look at your challenge through the lens of this narrative, it changes what happened, what happened, where we are, and then reveals a natural next step that your current narrative doesn't reveal as obvious at least. And so it naturally leads to more questions and ideas. They're kind of springboards for ideas. Uh, and again, just not starting from the same place that you would every year, which is probably like, what was our budget last year or what? What did we do last year and how did we fare as well? Yeah, yeah. We'll get it. When we talk about outthink the competition, we'll get into that as well. I think that's a really important uh, fault to many strategic processes. We'll build on this. And I thought it was really important to go back to your origin as well of, of writing this book as well and see how your thinking has progressed over the years as well with 
the changes in the continuous change in the ecosystem and the business world and business landscape as well that we're seeing more and more. Next stratagem is 14. I love the title of this one, Beat the Grass to Startle the Snake. But we'll couch this in part two because this comes under part two of the book, which is one of my favorite one, laws from the ancient East, which is Wu Wei. Oh, Wu Wei. Oh my gosh. That's the most powerful, one of the most powerful terms. When I'm, when I'm, I, I sometimes have delivered my work in China. When I use the word Wu Wei, it evokes this kind of, uh, wow, you know the term? It is a profound term. So Wu Wei doesn't translate. I don't speak Chinese, but I spent a lot of time with friends and 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 fellow students who are native Chinese people talking through having them try to explain the distinctions between these various stratagems and these four distinctions. So there's no clear translation, but it, it kind of translates into take the path of least effort, which can sound like being lazy in the West, but that's not what it means. It's really about being wise. It's about recognizing that there's a moment, an opportune moment to take action, um, to, to link this to some um, kind of Western you know, rooting. There are two words for time in Latin. There's kairos and there's chronos. Chronos is what the term that we primarily use, which is time measured like a clock. Things happen at a certain time. Kairos is different. Kairos is measuring time by moments of opportunity. When things, a, a confluence of factors come together and make it the right moment. So the idea of Wu Wei is if you can read all the signs, you can identify when it is the right moment. Like crossing a street, let's say, right? Busy street, you're waiting, you know, there's cars coming on this side. Just as about that row is about to go, there are more cars coming on the other side. It's not your time yet. Then it looks like it's going to clear, but then a bicycle rider comes by. Now you have to wait, and then more cars come, and you're waiting, right? And it's not exactly at a particular time that you're going to cross. You read the signs, and then you see the opening, and then you... And it's so, so applicable to innovation as well. Not force You can't force it. You right. can't tell people in the organization, innovate, goddamn you, you know, it doesn't work out. But it, yeah, so, so many times, like the ideas that we have, like, yeah, have you ever been in a meeting where someone says, hey, why don't we try this? And then someone says, oh, we did that. We tried that three years ago. It doesn't work. Well, it didn't work then, but, you know, maybe it works now. The technology's changed. The regulations changed. The social, like, behaviors have changed. The complementary products have advanced. You know, it's, uh, it may not, yeah, it may not be, might, might have been the moment yet. Let's plant the seed there as well. For Later on, we'll talk about the iPod, for example, and Sony, and that the timing thing that you talk about there as well. So understanding that you know you need to have all the all everybody aligned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you have misalignment, you're in trouble. I'm just planting the seed for that now. But but I teed up this one, which is number fourteen: beat the grass to startle the snake. Now you mentioned if I win the World Cup, for example, this made absolutely huge sense to me. So we're we're at the advent uh, at the time of recording of this of the World Cup in rugby at the moment and many of the teams have been playing these friendly games and they're never really great these pre-warm-up games because to the exact point of this stratagem nobody wants to show their hand. So um, the metaphor is this Chinese phrase beat the grass to startle the snake and the idea is here you're walking along the 
open plain or bush, there's a bush in front of you. There might be a snake in there, but you don't know if there's a snake in there. It could be that you want to eat the snake. It could be you're afraid of the snake, but for whatever reason, you want to be good to know if there's a snake. And one thing you could do is you could just walk around the bush, but there might not be a snake there, in which case you just wasted a bunch of time. You could just walk into the bush, but if there is a snake there and it's poisonous, you'll get bit. So what do you do? You take out a stick and you beat the grass and either the snake appears and you know it's there and so you walk around or the snake does not appear and then you know there's no snake there and so then you walk through. So the idea of a small scale attack, an attack that reveals information about your situation or your enemy, I guess in the in the rugby example, what you're opponent is trying not to do is reveal what their snake is, right? Because then that will inform the strategy when the real game starts. Um, so this is becoming increasingly uh, important in business. Before I wrote this, this wasn't as prevalent as now. There are different permutations of this. Um, we look at Microsoft behavior, you'll see that they did this. They do this often. Their second follower and then they try something small, they learn, and often they get poo-pooed, oh, they failed, and then they go back and they do it again, they do it again, and then they figure it out. Today, we call this frugal innovation, we can call this experimentation, we could call this agile, we could call this scrum, we could call this human-centered design, we could call this recursive innovation, we could call this the spiral theory, all of that stuff that comes from the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act from John Boyd of taking action, observing what's happening, and then adjusting your approach based on what you observe. So I saw this actually do with Steve Blank. I know you're having the other one. He is one of the people that took this OODA loop concept and introduced it as a business approach. And you'll see quotes, a quote of him where he says that um, that uh, the the lean approach comes from uh, from from warfare, particularly jet fighting. Something like that. And, 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 and anyway, so the common root here is whether you're looking at jet fighting, you're looking at uh, lean, or you're looking at beat the grass, the start of the snake, it takes small actions, learn from those actions, and then inform. It reminds me of your friend and friend of the show, Rita McGrath, and the discovery-driven planning approach. Yes, exactly. Yeah, discovery-driven planning. You, you have a hypothesis and you don't try to prove all the hypo all the things that would have to be a true what's the going to be the uptake rate of this new product among this new customer you could say it's going to be 10 percent, but you don't know the data doesn't exist so you start the strategy you have certain assumptions and then as you learn you discover then you plug that back in and then it will adjust your answer so let's move on to number 17 i love i love the titles of these Seize the opportunity to lead the sheep away, or as you translate it for a business audience, seize the deer in the headlights moment. Yes, yes. And this basically for me is disruption theory. Just the 500 AD version. So the story is there is a poor beggar walking down the street and he sees some sheep. And he thinks, oh, if I had one of those sheep, I could eat it. And I wouldn't be hungry. I could sell it and I wouldn't be penniless. But there is a shepherd looking over the flock. So he pushes this idea aside and says, well, I can't take a sheep because 
the, the, the shepherd's going to stop. As he's leading the herd, walking beyond it, he looks back and he knows the shepherd has gone up the hill and has turned his head. And he thinks, well, what would happen if I took one of these sheep? I would take it and first of all, the shepherd wouldn't see me because his head is turned. Second, if the shepherd did see me, he wouldn't be able to reach me here at the bottom of the hill. By the time he got to the bottom of the hill, I would already have been walking along the road further. And then he's going to be on the horns of a dilemma. Do I protect, recapture that one sheep and put my whole flock at risk? Or do I protect my flock? And he'll do the calculus and he will choose to protect his flock. So if you think that through, there is no way that the shepherd can logically, optimizing for what's best for him, stop you from taking the sheep. So you take the sheep and you walk. And I teed us up earlier on for the story you share here, which is so ironic, which is the Apple Sony, but then Sony forgetting their origins with RCA. This is what gave birth to Sony. Sony, you know, the transistor is invented. At the time, radios are made with these huge vacuum tubes. And um, Sony doesn't make TVs. They make, I think, electric blankets, and electric pots, really simple stuff. And they say, wait, we should create a radio with this transistor. Now, the other companies, RCA, for example, that's heavily invested, they've got a whole business selling these giant TVs with these vacuum tubes. They think it's going to take a decade for them to develop the transistor to a point where it could be a commercial thing. But the reason that they think it's going to take so long is because they don't want to cannibalize their core. They don't want to lose their, 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 um, their flock of sheep. But Sony doesn't have that problem, so they figure out that they can, they decide that they can advance it much more quickly. They develop a transistor-based radio, they introduce it, and then they take over the radio market. They disrupt, and then they become the electronics giant that we know today. Now, they get disrupted themselves because they now own music. They have a you know music label. They develop the MP3 player, the Walkman. MP3 player, they're the largest manufacturer of MP3 players with the number one brand in mobile music, the Walkman, and they own content. Beautiful situation going on there. They love that. Apple says, we're going to now invent a digital music player. This is for the um, iPhones, the iPod. We're going to get a digital music player that allows you to play a thousand songs and put them in your pocket. Makes it easy for you to download music and and listen to music. Now, Sony doesn't want to do this because they make money from their entertainment division. They want to have control over the content. So they resist responding to this more open framework. And Apple knew that they weren't going to defend this positioning. So they're able to launch the iPod. It becomes the success that it is. It leads to the uh, Apple Music Store the deal with uh, music labels. Uh, also, Sony doesn't want to do deals with music labels because those are competitors to them. So for a number of reasons, Sony doesn't want to put its flock at risk to go after this one sheep. Apple recognizes that. They take that sheep, they turn into iPod, turns into iPhone, and turns into what? It reminded me of there's the, these stones and they've kind of, 
there, the stones called tsunami stones throughout places like J Japan. And they serve as warning signs to go, don't build your house here. There was a tsunami here before. Don't build beyond this point. And in most positions in the world, they're either grown over or they've been knocked down to build houses, right? And, and I always think of when I read a story like this about Sony, that they forget the success actually leads to them forgetting and that an organization needs a conceptual tsunami stone to go remember this is how we got in because somebody else dropped their guard or somebody else was looking after or, or not looking after their sheep. And I, I'd love your thoughts on that because that that's something that we see and we'll cover later in later episodes as well as grass. It's a it's a very human thing. Um, you begin, you don't know the answer. Or you're agile, you're experimenting, you're, an, you're entrepreneurial, you're dynamic, right? You don't have the model. Then you come across a model that works, the right product, the right person, promoted the right way, the right pricing model, distribution, the right team and organization, operational frequency and all that stuff. And now you've got the magic, right? And now what you want to do is you you want that not to change. You want to stop innovation. Like in another book that we're going to cover here, I think, is the way of innovation, these five different phases. And one of those phases is the innovator wants innovation to stop because they own the game. Now, what that does is that solidifies the walls around your fortress and you know protects your core, but it also creates rigidity. And then when the environment shifts and that environment would be better served by a new model, new business model, new product, new whatever, um, you know, the incumbent will resist adapting, right? And, and mathematically, it would make sense if they, if they take a shorter term perspective, it makes more sense for them to play in their declining market than to start expanding new markets. They make more money from that. Um, but it's just natural. Like, we, you know, humans, we're just lazy, right? We are, we're constantly looking for ways to stop thinking. 90% of our behavior is driven by subconscious acts, right? That you experience when you go to like a new country or you step off a plane in a new city, you're like, mind is because is, you're being hit by so many new senses that it's overwhelming. You can't think of anything else. But when you go home, you don't even notice your front door or whether you're turning left or which tea you take out, right? All of that's automatic. Same thing with companies. They get something that's working and then it becomes automatic. Yeah. And again, the, these cards and this book introduce a whole new way of thinking. So you don't do that. It actually breaks those mental models. So we'll jump to stratagem 18, which is feign madness, but keep your balance. And I'm going to introduce this first quote because this is a quote that many people should maybe think about. I certainly say this to my kids. When I have two boys and one will sometimes try and show how smarter they are than the other. And when I read this quote, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to read this out to them. And that next time that happens, it goes as follows. At times, it is better to pretend to be foolish and do nothing than to brag about yourself and act recklessly. Be composed and plot secretly like thunderclouds hiding themselves during winter only to bolt out when the time is right. And again, that's from the 36 stratagems. I think this really speaks to something. It's actually something I was working on um, this week, a new blog post, which is your strategy is a joke. And there are different theories of what makes a joke effective. Um, 
one of the theories is that people expect one thing and then they suddenly realize that what you've introduced is something else. And the laughter is them reacclimating themselves to it's not A, it's B. Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. So what is true in many flavors of disruption or breakthrough, whatever you want to call it, is the laughing of the incumbent at the strategy, thinking that it is a joke, that you're flawed, that you're scared, that, that, that you're crazy. So that's what this speaks to is evoking that. It could be Richard Branson, like looking crazy, jumping out of planes and hot air balloons to get British Airways and 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 tower records or you know to just laugh at oh he doesn't know what he's doing right he's crazy to get them to discount him you know it but but if we look at the path of every great disruption there is that laughing appearing of crazy among other people the idea that Tesla could introduce a high performance electric vehicle when everyone knew that the way to get to the electric vehicle is to target the people who care about energy conservation, who probably drive Subarus, who are, you know, lower price point, less about performance. That's how everyone was entering EVs and then they enter from the top or whether that's Sam Walton building stores in rural areas when everyone knew you had to grow them in the city, right? They think that you're crazy. So it's about looking to create that perception in those who would copy you or fight you that actually your idea is flawed and crazy. You know, I read as well, Jeff Bezos said, you know, if you're going to do anything meaningful, you're going to have to tolerate period, long periods of being misunderstood as well. But but you run out of runway then in those times as well. So you need, this is one of the things I find, and you've definitely experienced it both with the CSOs you work with or heads of innovation or business leaders is that there's a huge need for resilience during these periods for you because you will actually be gaslit by the organization and made feel that you're crazy. Even if you're trying to play crazy, <laughs> you might feel you are. Yes. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. And that's kind of the trick is how do you get your competitors to view you as crazy while you get your team and the people that you work with not to see you as crazy? And that's hard because what makes you look crazy is that your idea is inconsistent with established beliefs and norms. And since we've grown up in the same industry as our competition, our established beliefs and norms are very similar to that of our competition. So if our competition is going to think we're crazy, likely our, our, our colleagues will think we're crazy as well. Uh, but, but, but you're right, standing within that disbelief. And one thing that I think we'll probably talk about this later, but um, the metrics that you use in that earlier stage where you're being misunderstood are different than the metrics that you used once you've broken out. You look at revenue, revenue is flat, 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 flat. But um, like your other guest, Paul Nunez said, you have your revenue curve, but before that, you have S curves, which are not as measurable capability curves, for example. So you could be measuring that and say, look, I'm not making many more sales right now, but I see our capabilities are building. We're figuring out how to get people from through the pipeline and in, in six months instead of three months, that kind of thing, then um, those are the kind of the early indicators, as your guest Rita McGrath would say, those are the, the leading indicators that, hey, they, they're calling me crazy, but you know, we're building. We are 
the, the thunderstorm behind it. Beautiful. And you talk about it as well in this book where you say like the likes of Microsoft will be laughed at or H&M even, and they're, they're going into these step, you know, careful steps, making mistakes, but learning from those mistakes and then reiterating and going again. And that, that speaks to this as well. The, the, I'm going to introduce the next one, but um, we're, we're on to something that you talked about earlier on, which is Wu Chang, which is continuous change. There's an excerpt here that I just have to share with our audience. And, and because for the, some people who won't get to read the book, I highly recommend reading it, though. It's a really refreshing read. But this opening part is beautifully written. It's, it goes as follows. And this is you. <laughs> Your mental model for what change should be and how it affects you has a powerful impact on your actions. It invisibly guides your thinking, telling you what type of change your action will cause, whether or not, and even when you can take such action. While your mental model may help you decide which actions to take, it also limits your options and freedom by telling you which action you should not take. Many people find it difficult to see their mental models at work because they have been around nearly their entire lives and are so familiar. They have been so submerged in their mental model of change that they can no longer see them, just as a fish can no longer see the ocean. This is not to say that a familiar model for change is inaccurate or wrong, but by clinging to it consistently, the person grows rigid and predictable. And I thought I'd get you to share the difference between Eastern and Western views of change. And you alluded to this earlier on with that story of the Chinese farmer. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We jumped ahead there. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese farmer is like the perfect um, kind of a fable to describe that is instead of thinking of change as maybe a line that's going up or going down, we think of it as uh, an undulating side wave of up and down. And there are things that, uh, you know, when you're going, but what, what that means is when you're going down, in a linear view, oh no, we're declining. We're going down and down and down and down and down. Our revenues are, what's going to happen at the bottom, right? But if you think of it as a side wave, the going down could be the building of kinetic energy that when it hits the bottom, like a roller coaster, powers you then to go up. And when you're going up, the opposite is true, right? That going up is not, oh, we're going up and up and up and up and up and up. It is we're building potential energy that will slow us down and then we're going to go down again. You know, but that's okay. And so all of your projections, if you were to, you know, project two years, three years, five years, are radically different if you are adopting a linear view versus a cyclical view or an undulating view. And so in the undulating view, a lot of it has to do then with timing. Like when these different sine waves all reach their peak at the same time. In fact, just two days ago over here in the East Coast of the US, there was something called the super blue moon. Blue moon only happens once a year. The super moon happens something like three times a year when there's a full moon, when the moon is closest to the earth. Tab both happen at the same time as a super blue moon. That only happens once every 10 years. So anyway, thinking of continuous change just has you start thinking about this way, looking for the confluence of situations 
that create these moments. This is Stratagem 23 that comes under Wu Chang, which is exchange the role of guest for that of host. So the idea here is that uh, people are more likely to let you into their house if they view you as a guest, if they view you as humble, not a threat, maybe supportive, maybe you come and wash the dishes for them, right? But then once you're in the house, you can start building more power and more control. So we shift from guest to host. Walmart does this. One of my cousins in Bangladesh owns a factory that makes clothing and also leather goods. And his greatest fear is that Walmart's going to come to him and say, hey, we want to have you manufacture some shoes for us. And we're just going to use a little bit of your capacity, but we're going to pay you a really high price on it. Because what he'll be tempted to do is to take that because he has this excess capacity and now he can use that at a high margin. What will happen is if he does that, he knows that they're going to come back to him and say, great job. Wow, you are you know, one of the best. We're going to give you a gold star or whatever that is. We want to even buy more from you. We're going to buy 20% of your capacity and still give you a high price. And then he'll do it. And then it will repeat. They'll be 30%, 40%, 50% of your capacity at a high price. And then they'll come to you and say, we want to use 60% of your capacity, but we're going to give you a very low price. And now if he's optimizing his profit, he looks at it, he says, is it better to you spend, spend 60% of my capacity at this lower price or to be 50% under unutilized? And say, well, we might as well make the money and then Walmart has you. One of the participants in one of my workshops said that he recognized that this when he was negotiating a contract with uh, the landlord of a of of a storage you know space that he was he was using a little you know, factory or whatever and he recognized that that's what they were doing they were going to give them a an easy good entry and then they were he's going to move his equipment in and a low rate and then they were going to have him and then he was going to be forced to to pay more um so that's that's the general concept you know um, apple is brilliant at this you know you buy a phone and you start taking pictures, the pictures go to your cloud, then you get some music and the music is on your your Apple Music and then you want to switch to Android, but all of your music and all your files and all your photos are there. They let you in and then they got you. Absolutely works in an Apple context as well. And it also, as you say, they leverage the brand. Like you mentioned the story of Virgin leveraging the brand elsewhere. And I thought about that. It was one of the things that came to mind. It was like kind of gone. Apple could easily now enter, have the Apple car because so many people have so much trust in the brand, but also that ecosystem, you're kind of locked in. Yep, exactly. You're, yeah, you're locked in. Um, yeah, this relates to another strategy, which we're not covering today, which is shut the door to capture the thief. You know, your thief is in the house. You shut the door so they can't get away. Your customer's in the house. You make sure that when they leave, they're buying a lot more. Uh, that's a different kind of path to this. It's like, a lot of these are doors to the same strategy. When you find the same strategy is accessible through multiple doors, that means that you have multiple strategic rationales why that might be a good idea. One way to create that, one way to approach this strategy is to say, what would it look like to enter as a guest and then build power? Another one is to say, where are moments that I have power that I already have and how can I shut the door? They can lead to the same strategy, but they're just like different mental. And it's great for doing that as well, because you do see how, and you mentioned how they're interwoven as you read the book. And also, it's 
both the 36 Stratagems book, which you've encouraged me to get, by the way, <laughs> you'd be getting royalties on that as well, uh, and your book, they, they, they're probably more reference books that you come back to time and time again than even to read in all one go, because you, 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 I, I think they're even good to read one in a day and then go and think about it or see it through that lens for a day or so and then come back and read the next one, et cetera. You're absolutely right. And, you know, and, and mathematically, that's because that humans can, re can retain seven plus or minus two things at once in their short-term working memory. And so we have more than seven plus or minus two patterns here. So you can't keep them in your head, even though I've been working with them for 20 years and I've written two books about them and I probably know them as well as, uh, you know, there maybe there are a few people who are more familiar of, of them than I am in the world. Still, I can't. I still have to have my cards with me and pull them up because just it's not possible for you to have them all accessible in your brain. So it should be more be a reference than a. I have to say, it's one of the biggest things for me with the show. People think I'm a fast reader. I'm an extremely slow reader because I, I have to, I take notes and then I have to go away. Otherwise, I just, they just be, it just becomes too much noise at the same time. So I need to let it marinate, let it digest over time. These were written around 500 AD. No one knows who wrote them. They're developed over the course of about a thousand years of storytelling, oral storytelling, people telling stories. Then stories being synthesized as they get retold, and then they get distilled and distilled and distilled into 36 phrases. So you can think of this as a thousand-year research history, a research uh, effort into the, the fundamental patterns of, of strategy. Now, compare that to where we are standing now. We've been studying business strategy for 70 years. So we're putting up our 70 years of studying strategy against this thousand-year research. I mean, it would be, um, we'd be thinking quite, highly of ourselves to think that in these 70 years we've discovered as much and distilled it as completely as as this text is so it's really worth taking the time to read and yeah and, and for you to be reading them at such a young age magnificent gift to be given as well to give that lens at, a, at such a young age we better keep that moving so we're on strat stratagem 24 at this stage which is borrow a road a large kingdom, it comes from a story where a large kingdom wants to attack another kingdom, but they don't have direct access to them. So they create an alliance with a middle kingdom that has access. They pass to that kingdom. They win the, the, the battle. And on their way back, they take over the small kingdom. So there's two principles here. One is someone else has access to you and to, to, your, to what you have, and you, and you borrow that. They have something that you need, um, but it is a temporary alliance. It's not a permanent alliance. So Lenovo, which you may be familiar with now, they were originally Legend. It was a company, Chinese company called Legend. And the HP wants to enter China. So Legend creates a, a, an alliance with HP to be the primary representative. Now, they're very explicit that this is uh, an alliance of convenience. They're going to help HP sell, but they're also going to lure the HP way. They're learning. And once they get good enough to do it themselves, then they start competing with HP and they rename themselves Lenovo, the Novo, the new legend. Um, and then you find that they, they, they bought IBM's PC business. Tons of examples of this Logitech starts off distributing uh, um, webcams and other peripherals for a European company into the U.S., 
they're learning and learning and learning. They are the borrowed road, but then they take over and they start manufacturing their own. As you say in the book, and as the stratagem says, if you're entering into a marriage, make sure it's for life, <laughs> it's for the long term. Or contemplate what the end of that will be and make sure that you are doing the right thing so that at the end of that, you are happy. Because I'm conscious of your time as well, and we've got so much of your time, and you're very generous to give us that. So we have a few, couple left to go. So strategy 25 is, I love, again, the language here, shed your skin like the golden cicada, or as you create the simpler version, create a facade and move the action. So the metaphor is the cicada is a bug that every few years, I forget if it's three years or seven years, it, they shed their skin. They they latch onto a tree and then they, move, they, they, they empty out of their shell. And what's left is a hard shell that is the shape of the cicada. So if you're walking down through a park and you'll, you'll see a cicada, it looks like it's in the wall, but then you look, it's actually a hollow shell. So that's the principle. There's a hollow shell. People think it's real, but actually the action has moved. An application of this in business is what we call profit pooling where you're not making money from one place, but you're making the money somewhere else where you can protect profit. In the UK, there's a company called Thompson Travel. They were initially known as a travel retail business. You walk down the street, London, you'll see a Thompson Travel shop. You walk in and you'll buy tickets to Africa. They will try to upsell you on a whole tour of Africa. You might sign up for that. If you sign up for the tour, then what happens is you're going to get on a charter airline that charter airline is operated by the owner of Thompson Travel. Now, what they can do now is they can pull the profits in the charter airline business because the economics of the charter airline business are such that they've got very high fixed costs. So you lose money up until the airplane is 70% capacity. Once it's above 70% capacity, each ticket sale goes almost entirely to profit. So they lose money or they make less money on the retail side, but they funnel all of that action into the charter airline business and they have an abnormally profitable charter airline. Facade is the retail business. The action is the um, the charter airline business. U-Haul in the United States, they don't make money from renting the trucks. They make money from selling the boxes that you buy when you're moving uh, you know, as, as an example. So the question is, if your current business were actually a facade and you weren't making money from it, where would you make it? Beautiful. Beautiful. You, you've teed us up now for the last one, which is in part four, Chang Bing Wu Bing is indirect action. So maybe we'll say just a quick word on what that is, that law. And then the stratagem that falls under that, that I wanted to share with our audience is openly repair the walkway and secretly march to Cheng Chang. And that's to take the unorthodox path. Many of our concepts and strategy are rooted in games that we play. And in the West, a popular strategy game is chess. In chess, you line up your pieces against your opponent, and then you go and attack them. You know, if it's a horse, you go, you know, in L shape. Or if it's a rook, you go diagonally. If it's a queen, you go. But you're but you're lining up and you're hitting the enemy. In Go, you don't hit the enemy. You surround the enemy. You're looking for the open spaces. You're indirectly attacking them by going around them, right? So we're not conscious of which frame we're in necessarily, 
but we are usually in one of those frames. So this just invites you to take the frame of go. Let's click indirect action. Um, and so there are several stratagems that are applicable here. The other, the one of them is called the unorthodox path. And so it comes from this Chinese story of a king who is in exile and he wants to get out. And, but he's been forced into exile and his, the, the dominant kingdom has ripped up the road that connects his kingdom to the main kingdom to prevent him from being able to attack. So what he does is he starts openly repairing the walkway and he starts building it. But building is going to take a long time and the kingdom, the, the dominant kingdom sees him building it. They know when he's going to come. They've got plenty of time to prepare themselves. They're going to go back and rip up the, the thing. They're not worried. They're focused on one path to their kingdom. Meanwhile, at night, he takes an army and marches a long circuitous march around and surprises the enemy and attacks them. The core principle is they think you're coming one way and instead you come an unorthodox way. You take the unorthodox. Many, many companies that have been dominant in their industries were founded on this principle. We think there's one way, there's another way. Salesforce.com, first software company that goes indirect as a cloud service. Before Salesforce.com, the way that you sold software is you developed it. Then you had integrators, whether they were yours or someone else, would go into the company and install the software in the servers that the company owned. And what Salesforce.com said, let's not install it in your servers. Let's install it in our servers and you will get to access it through this indirect path of the, you know, the, uh, a web interface. That introduces software as a service. Michael Dell, right? At the time, you only sold computers through retail. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that was the way that it had to be. There's a little bit of seize the deer in the headlights moment in that case because the existing incumbents are also tangled into and dependent on retailers. You got kind of two things going on, but they take an unorthodox path. So the question here is, where? what is the orthodox path that people just assume that is the way, that is the channel, that is the road? And given that they're fixated on that, what is a way around that? See, Beautiful one to finish on as well, because many of our audience are unorthodox thinkers. <laughs> so they're, they're going to think very, very differently. And that leads me to where can people find you? Because many people won't maybe get to our later episodes. Where is the best place to find Ken? And, and you have your own podcast. You're a prolific writer, and indeed your consultancy business. Probably easiest just to go to kaihan.net, k-a-i-h-a-n.net, and you can sign up for my newsletter. You can also get links to my podcast. You can get links to my business, which is Outthinker Networks. Kaihan.net is probably the best place to start, and I've got tons of content there: tools, downloads, uh, all of it open source and available for people who like people here are unorthodox thinkers. Absolutely. And and it goes right back decades. So this is how long Kayan's been doing this work as well. So we're going to follow up next day. I think we're going to do the way of, of innovation. So that's next on our next on our slate. And I want to thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I loved reading this book. It was a, a joy to read. So congrats on that as well. Kayan Krippendorf, thank you for joining us. Aiden, thanks for having me on, and I'm so excited for our next session.